heard a story of a man who was at Champlain Mall trying to find a parking space, and he drove around and around and around. You were just like getting so frustrated because he's trying to find something close to the door, like all good Christians do, right? We let other people walk. We find a place close to the door. We call it the favor of the Lord. But in any case, he's driving around and around and around, and finally he's so desperate and frustrated. He says, God, I promise you, if you find me a parking space close to the door, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And just as he comes around the corner, lo and behold, this, this parking space opens up as a car backs out. And the man says, never mind, Lord, I found one. <laughs> We've been talking on the subject of marriage uh, these past six weeks. Today is the sixth week. We've talked about how marriage matters. We've talked about uh, equality in marriage, uh, sex in marriage. We've talked about singleness. Uh, we've talked about pornography last week. And uh, in each of those weeks, there are things that the Lord speaks to us. There are little things the Lord has dropped in our heart, maybe things that have uh, maybe awakened something in you of hope or of truth, direction, freedom, insight from the Word, whatever it may be, because the Word of God is so counter to our culture. And I really want to encourage you that whatever it is the Lord has shown you, whatever the Lord is speaking to you, to lay hold of that and to press in and to walk in that. Because it's our human nature oftentimes when things are going well, we just kind of tend to go it on our own. Or when things are going well, it's kind of like, well, thanks, Lord. And we, we, we go in our own strength. And we can forget sometimes that when, when the Lord does show us things, he wants to bring us into new things. He wants to bring us into a new way of thinking and living and relating. But in order for that to happen, we really have to press in to our relationship with the Lord. And if you'll do that, then you'll always have a heart of gratitude, and the Lord will just continue to open new things for you. Well, as I mentioned, our series has been called Relation Slips. And this morning we're concluding this series and we're dealing with the subject of forgiveness, which really is a much needed practice in our marriages, but it's also something we need in everyday life. And I hope that you've noticed, it has been my intent, and it is again this morning, as we've dealt with these topics, to not be exclusive, but really to deal with it in a way that we can all glean something from it. So whether you're married, single, whatever your situation may be, you can glean from this, not only for yourself, but learn things that you're able to use as you share with others. And so this morning we are talking about forgiveness, and we need to learn how to forgive. We need to learn to forgive how, how to forgive, for example, bad things that have been done to us. We need to learn how to forgive hurts, uh, betrayals, whether it's physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, we need to learn to forgive things that have been done to us. We also need to learn to forgive things, good things, that were not done for us. Uh, it may be uh, your parents somehow neglected you or you never felt loved, or maybe, uh, maybe your spouse somehow doesn't live up to your expectations, or you don't feel they encourage you or affirm you or support you, whatever it may be, just good things that, that they've not done for you. We need to also learn to forgive perceived hurts, uh, people who have hurt us, people who have offended us, maybe even unintentionally. And, you know, sometimes we can tell ourselves, well, it's no big deal or it doesn't really matter, but you discover when you meet that person again, you feel guarded. You, you, you kind of pull back. You know, you're not really yourself around them, or you remember maybe what it was that they had done to you that was wrong. Well, let me just say, first of all, what forgiveness does not mean. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. Forgiveness does not mean that what the person did doesn't matter. That's not what forgiveness means. It doesn't mean that there, that, um, <clears throat> that there may not be a cost to their actions. 
forgiveness does not mean unearned trust. To forgive does not negate your right to have boundaries until that person who has done wrong to you uh, has earned their trustworthiness. Now, it doesn't mean that you lord it over them. It doesn't mean you demand your pound of flesh. No, it just means that as you walk with the Lord and you're walking out forgiveness, that if a person has offended you or hurt you, well, then there's certain ways that they need, there needs to be restitution, if that makes sense. If there's been repentance on their part, there needs to be also maybe some restitution sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with that. They need to earn your trust again. And then finally, of course, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. You don't forget the incident that happened to you necessarily, but what happens is, is the hurt can be removed. Hurt and offense, oftentimes I, I picture as like a dart, maybe a poisonous dart. And when you forgive, even though you may still feel the pain of it, you, you, in forgiveness, you remove the dart. And then as you walk in forgiveness, what has been hurting you begins to heal. It may take some time. It may take a long time. That's why when Peter said, how often should we forgive? Jesus said, I'm telling you, 70 times 7. Just you keep, what's he saying? You keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving because every time you forgive, the poison lessens. It lessens, it lessens. And you may even have a scar there, but you know what the good thing is about a scar? A scar reminds you that there's healing. There was hurt, but now there's healing. So forgiveness doesn't mean those things. What forgiveness does mean, number one, it means permanently canceling all debt. It means that you bring the account of that person against you to zero. It means the person does not have to repeatedly apologize. They don't have to repeatedly, uh, you know, make admissions to what they've done wrong. When you forgive and you walk in forgiveness and you know you have forgiven, is that person does not have to keep paying. Also, forgiveness means permanently forfeiting the right of reproach. That means that you won't bring the incident up again, or you won't avoid the person when you meet them. And then also it means permanently foregoing all expressions of judgment. To forgive the person means that you don't talk about them behind their back. You don't talk about them differently than you would somebody that you love because of what they've done wrong to you. Whether it's in private, whether it's in public, you just don't do that because you have forgiven them. Now you might ask this morning, how can we be willing to forgive? The first thing we need to understand is this. We don't deserve, but we need forgiveness. Let me say that again. One of the primary ways you can begin to forgive is understand that you do not deserve forgiveness yourself. But you need it. And God has made a way for you to experience it. I really believe one of the reasons we are so slow to forgive is because we want to punish the other person. Hear me. We not only want the person to feel the pain that we felt, we want them to feel it for as long as we feel it. That's human nature. That's what unforgiveness is. And if I choose to not forgive and I hold on to it, I will always be demanding that that person pay. If I'm walking in unforgiveness, I'm either always reminding the person what they did or I'm acting toward them in such a way that they know what I'm saying. They know why I'm this way. They know why I'm moody. They know why I'm snappy. They know why I don't talk, whatever the case may be. But we need to understand that we need forgiveness as well. I think it's safe to say that every single one of us here this morning, we have been hurt or offended by somebody at some time. Anybody? 
How many? Come on, be honest. Don't lie. You're going to offend me, right? We have all been hurt. We have all been offended by somebody at some time. But let me also say this. Every single one of us here this morning, we have all hurt somebody else. We have all offended somebody else. We have done something wrong or said something wrong or negated to do the right thing to somebody else. We've all done that. So what it means is that we all need forgiveness and we all need to forgive. I've said this many times, but one of the greatest guilts of human nature is that we judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? We do something wrong. What's our first response? Well, that's not what I meant. Even if it is, we backtrack because we've been caught, right? No, I didn't mean that when I said that. I didn't mean to do that or whatever the case may be. You see, to ourselves, we have, for ourselves, we have a whole lot of grace. We have a whole lot of understanding. Why? Because we say, well, that wasn't my intention. But to the other person, and it may not have been their intention, we judge them by their action. Can you imagine how different our relationships would be if we would be like Jesus and we would maybe judge others by their intentions when they mess up rather than by the action itself? In fact, not even judge at all, but that's, that's another huge step. So what we end up doing is we demand punishment of others. But hear me, if we demand punishment of others, then we also deserve for others to demand punishment of us. So how can we be willing to forgive? Number one, understand we don't deserve, but we need forgiveness. Number two, we are warned of the consequences if we do not forgive. Now, most of us know just from medical research that unforgiveness exacts an incredible toll on us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But medical science also shows that forgiveness brings an incredible calm to our lives. It calms our stress and it promotes good health. We're told that the anger and resentment created by unforgiveness, it increases our risk of depression. Anybody believe that? Doesn't it? It increases heart disease, diabetes, the list goes on. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What is he saying? Don't let it fester. Don't let it stay there. How many understand the devil works in the darkness? That's where he works. He works in your mind that you shut off to God and you just say, I want to think this way. I want to rehearse these offenses. I, I, I want this, you know, this vindicates me. It makes me feel bad, but it makes me feel good. So I want to hold on to this. You know, you ever say to somebody, don't cheer me up. I don't want to laugh. I want to hold on to this. I'm enjoying this. Well, that's the way our mind works. And Paul says, no, no, you can't let it linger because it doesn't just stay there. It festers because unforgiveness is actually a power because when you give into unforgiveness, you're actually giving into a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual entity. Paul says as much in the next verse. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. Revelation 12 calls Satan the accuser. You see, and when I open the door of my heart and I allow the accuser to enter in, then I become accusing. And when I become accusing or unforgiving, what am I doing? I am allowing him to get a foothold in my life. I'm allowing him to take residence in my life. Not only is he able to come into my heart and contaminate my heart and my soul, he also has the power to use me as his mouthpiece. We talked about that a couple months ago, right? He is able to speak through me. 
either speak through me to others to tear the person down, or if I will not forgive the person, to speak to that person in ways that are just like darts. You know, you owe me. You're going to keep paying for this. We have our way of exacting that pound of flesh. We keep going out, whatever the case may be. And what are you doing? You have to realize you are being used by demonic powers to tear that person down, to sow into their heart whatever the devil can, whatever he can get away with through you. If you had a screen door in your house and flies were getting in, and day after day, you were just chasing fly after fly after fly. You know, swatting flies, chasing flies. They're landing on everything. What are you going to do? Are you going to keep swatting flies forever? Or are you going to close the hole in the screen door? You see, unforgiveness is the hole in the screen door of your heart. As long as you allow it to remain open, you know what? The devil comes and goes at will. He knows he has a place in your heart. He can come, rattle your cage for a while, sow some things, put a few thoughts in there for the day, and leave for a while, leave you to yourself to moan and suffer and groan, and then he can come back anytime he wants. But the Bible says, we'll see in a few moments, that with God's help, we are able to close up that hole and find peace. Unforgiveness not only affects me physically, it also obstructs my relationship with God. David said this in Psalm 66, If I had known of any sin in my heart, that is, if I had known, the Lord would not have listened to me. David's not saying that there's maybe not sin in my heart, but when the Holy Spirit makes me aware of it, if I hold on to that willfully, then God will not hear me. Peter makes the same observation in 1 Peter 3 and 7. I don't have the scripture up there, but he basically says this, that a person's prayers are hindered before God if they are out of fellowship with their spouse. If you're angry at your spouse, God says, don't waste your time talking to me. I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Now, it's different if you're processing humility and saying, Lord, I need help to forgive. That's different. But if you're harboring unforgiveness, because you've got to understand this, however bad that person is, God loves them as much as he loves you. You see, if I, ha I have two sons whom I love dearly. I love them equally. Well, one more. No, I'm just teasing, guys. <laughs> I'll let them fight it out. Love them equally. Do you think I can have fellowship with Ben if I know he hates Alex? No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You have to deal with that. I can't have open fellowship with you. It's not right right now. We're not at peace. If you've got something against your brother, same with Alex. If Alex came to me and said this and that about Ben, no, 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 we don't entertain it. That's your brother. Let's make it right because we're family. We have communion. We have fellowship together. Friends, God is saying you got to understand it's the same thing. You might trick yourself, fool yourself, deceive yourself into believing, hey, me and God are okay. God says, no, you're fooling yourself. We ain't okay. God never says ain't, but, you know, he says, we're not okay. you got to get this right. You want fellowship with me, and that's why anytime you come to God, if you come to God open-faced, hiding nothing, if you come before God, every single time God will bring that person to mind. He'll bring that thing to mind. Why? Because he's saying, I can't, I'm sorry, we can't do this. No, that's why Jesus said, whatever sacrifice you're bringing, whatever worship, whatever good deeds, you leave them at the altar and you go make it right with your brother or sister. Then you come back and we'll talk and we'll have fellowship and I'll receive your gifts, I'll receive your heart, and we'll move forward. So very important to understand. It obstructs my relationship with God. What's more, unforgiveness will even jeopardize the salvation of your children. 
You say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? I'll tell you what I'm talking about, what I've seen in 35 years of ministry. I, there are countless children who've grown to be young adults who've fallen away from Christ, and you trace it back, and the reason is because they grew up in a home where they did not see their parents model forgiveness. They see, they see them leave their church all the time. They see them have pastor for lunch. They see them criticizing somebody else, and they wonder why our kids fall away from the Lord. I see it over and over again. But what I've also seen is this. I've seen Christian parents who deal with hurt and offense in a Christ-like, biblical way, modeling that before their children, and I see their children seeing a living faith and walking with Christ well into their adult years. It has a powerful impact on forgiveness on our families. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story in which there's a man who owes this insurmountable debt to a king. In fact, Jesus gives a dollar amount to illustrate that if this man lived a thousand lives, he would never be able to pay the debt back. And so this man just goes to the king and throws himself at his feet and begs for mercy because the man knows there is no way I can pay this. And he knows in that culture he would be sent to the debtor's prison until he paid it, which is forever. He would die in prison. And so he asks for mercy, and the king wipes out his entire obligation. All of it. No sooner does the man leave the king's presence that he finds another man who owes him pocket change by comparison. And he has that man thrown into prison until he pays off the few pennies that he owes him. Word gets back to the king. The king is outraged. And he brings the man back into his presence and he says this. Verse 32. You wicked servant. Now understand, he didn't just say, you mean guy. No, you see, he recognizes this man has done what? He has given the enemy a foothold in his life. He recognizes that the enemy, the devil, the accuser is at work in this man's heart. He looks past his outward appearance and he sees into his heart and he says, I know what's in you. I know what controls you. It is evil. It is the enemy. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt only because you pleaded with me, not because you had it, you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus brings the lesson home. He says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, say it with me, from your heart. In other words, if you do not truly, completely, permanently forgive. Now, I want us to understand something very important here. Jesus says, if you don't do that, you endanger your relationship with God. And hear me, friends, we can play games. But Jesus is saying, you will endanger your salvation. You will endanger your eternity. Now, please understand, Jesus is not talking about somebody who wants to forgive. He's not talking about any of us here this morning who are struggling to forgive. We have a heart that says, Lord, I hear you, or maybe he's spoken to you in the past. Lord, I know I have to forgive, and, and I want to. I'm on track for that. Lord, I just need your help because this is really hard. He's not talking about that person. He's not talking with a person who's struggling to forgive. He's not talking with a person who is in the process of forgiving seven times 70, wherever you may be in that journey. He's not talking about that. He is talking about the person who says in their heart, I will not forgive you. 
I will not. The flip side is this. If you live in the assurance of yourself, you will live, rather, in the assurance of your salvation if you live in forgiveness. Now, I know there are some Christians who don't believe that you can lose your salvation. I believe you can. I believe it's a lot harder than we maybe realize, but we can. Because I think the Bible is pretty clear in a few scriptures, but I think of Hebrews chapter 6, which says that it is possible to have been enlightened it's possible, Hebrews says, to have tasted of the heavenly gift, to have shared in the Holy Spirit, and yet to fall away, never to be restored to repentance. You can't fall away from something you never had. And somebody might say, well, Pastor, that, it must mean that person was not saved in the first place. You can split hairs if you want theologically, but the end result is exactly the same. You do not forgive others because you have not experienced forgiveness yourself. And so either way, you end up in the same place. You end up separated from God. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 7? He who loves little has been forgiven little. I think what he's saying is, you really don't know Jesus if you don't know his love. And, and again, he's not speaking about the person who sincerely is willing to forgive with God's help and is working on that. He's speaking to the person who says, I have a sovereign will, and I will to not forgive. I choose to not forgive. Then God says, you need to understand, I don't forgive you. I don't forgive you. Because in the parable, God is saying, there is nothing that has been done to you that surpasses what's been done to me. And I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you. I understand your hurt. I understand your pain. I was there when the devil was doing the work. I understand all that's going on inside of you. But I want you to understand I can set you free. I can give you grace to forgive. I can do a work in your heart if you'll let me walk with you. Luke 17 Jesus said these words. He said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. <laughs> Think about that. Seven times in the day. And it's the same stinking sin. And i got to forgive him if he's truly repentant. Now, I want you to try to imagine this. In the culture of the day, the disciples were blown away because they realized if we're following this Jesus, we have to obey his teachings and do what he says. He's telling us to do something I've never seen anybody do. Nobody does that, Jesus. We've never seen it. We've grown up in the religious institutions here. We've never seen that. And in fact, this is what they say. It goes on in verse 5. The, the apostles uh, said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Jesus, if you're expecting this of us, we want you to know flat out, we can't do this. There is no way that we can do this. And I want you to notice I placed a Greek word there in brackets. It's the Greek word chi. Uh, the Greek word chi, it's a conjunction. A conjunction, of course, just joins two thoughts or two sentences together. We use the words like and or but or for. Uh, those are conjunctions. They join sentences together. And that is what is here in the original language. And, and it's very important. In most, most of your Bibles, if it's like mine, you're going to have three different uh, partitions in that early chapter. 
You're going to have uh, the first part, then you're going to come to verse 5. You're probably going to have a break with a new heading. Maybe you come to verse 7. That's why I said on Facebook post, bring your Bibles. In fact, I want to encourage you, bring your Bible. I know you're all saying, I got my phone. No, bring your Bible. Can we do that? Can we start doing that? Wouldn't that be wonderful that we walk into church and we have the Word of God? We actually have a pen and a marker and we can take notes and we can all, you know, be students of the Word. I want to encourage you to do that. Yeah, all the proud people are holding their Bibles. <laughs> I love you for bringing your Bible. I'm not embarrassing you if you haven't, but it's easy to do the habit, especially if we have it on our phones. But, but uh, we want to be students of the Word. So in any case, in this particular case, what you see here is that we have that conjunction, but we also have, uh, how many have, if you have your Bibles, even on your phones, is it broken up for you? When you, when you look at that chapter here in, in Luke chapter 17, do you have a couple different paragraphs, a couple different headings maybe? One for verse 5, one for verse 7, okay? Uh, maybe not all, but I looked in a few of my Bibles and it does do that. The problem with that, it gives, it gives you the impression that Jesus is actually talking in this chapter about three different topics that he begins to talk about forgiveness, and then the disciples ask a question, so now it goes into faith, and then after that's all done, he goes into this talk about an unworthy servant. And so we think that there's kind of like three different ideas in that paragraph of Scripture, but it's not. It's actually one topic, one truth, that he is restating a few times to make the point. And it's evidenced by that conjunction chi, which translates this way. And... The apostles said to the Lord. Okay, so here we go. Jesus said, disciples, if you're going to follow me, be like me, live in the kingdom, you have to forgive. Totally. Seven times if necessary in the same day. Even to the same person, you have to. The disciples say, well, Lord, if that's the case, then you're going to have to give us more faith. And so Jesus responds to the request with these two thoughts. I want to give you the second one first. In verse 7, he starts with, he says a parable. He says, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come on in and eat with me? No. The master says, prepare my meal. Put on your apron and serve me while I eat, and then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he's told to do? Of course not. Everybody say, of course not. Of course not. Tell the person beside you. Of course not. Ben I don't know if that means of course not, but of course not. What are you thinking? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. What's going on here? The disciples are a little bit upset because Jesus is talking about forgiveness and he's talking to them in a way that is assuming they're going to do the same thing. The disciples realize Jesus is talking about a radical kind of life that includes a radical kind of forgiveness. And they're trying to wiggle off the hook by implying that such a thing is too hard. And so what they say to Jesus is this. Oh, well, we need more faith. In other words, well, Lord, we're not there yet. I'm sure you understand. We're just flesh. We're just human. You know, nobody's perfect. Right? I saw it on a car bumper sticker once. We're not perfect, just forgiven. I wanted to rip it off. Because we're called to be perfect. That is, we're called to be mature. We're called to be like Christ. We're called to have a radical kind of love, a radical kind of forgiveness. We're called to be radical. 
in, in, in contrast to what we see in our culture. And Jesus uses this parable, and he basically says this, because when they're saying, hey, we just need more faith, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You see, when the master tells you to do something, you don't need more faith. You just need to do what you're told. If you really understand I'm your master, it's not a question of more faith. You just need to obey. In other words, rather than making excuses, Jesus says, your response needs to be, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Not quite sure how we're going to do it. Not sure, Lord, how are you going to help me do that? But I'm going to step right here and say, okay, Lord, yes. Yes. He says, that's the servant. That's the servant who understands the master. You don't give excuses. You begin with the yes. And so Jesus answers the request for more faith by addressing their willingness to forgive. That's where it's got to begin. I've got to be willing. And then he talks about their ability to forgive in verse 6. If you had faith given as small or as little as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I believe, you don't need more faith. You just need real faith. That's all you need. You just need the real thing. If you had that, even this tree would obey you. You might remember the story in Matthew chapter 17 of the father who brought his son looking for Jesus. He heard that Jesus was in the region. His son was being tormented by a demon, throwing him into the fire, all those things. And he, he heard that Jesus is somewhere nearby. He travels, and he finally finds the crowd. And he sees that Jesus isn't there. So, of course, he's disappointed. But he sees his disciples are there. Matthew 17, Mark 9, same story. And he's encouraged. Why? Hear me, friends. Because the father assumed that even though Jesus was not there, his disciples were there. And because these are the disciples of Jesus, they can do what Jesus does. Now, is that too crazy? Or does that kind of sound biblical? Didn't Jesus kind of say, greater things than me shall you do? He wasn't saying bigger as far as more glorious. You know, Jesus did some amazing things. You will do those things, but you'll do them en masse. Because I will be in all of you. There will be thousands, millions of you around the world doing this stuff. Greater quantity will you do of these things. And so the father was right in assuming the disciples should be able to help him. But the disciples ended up getting into an argument with the religious leaders over who had the right. And you know what? The father could give a rip. He didn't care. How many of you care who's theologically right when you have a need? No, 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 no. Just find me someone who knows Jesus. When you got a prayer request, what are you looking for? Someone who has the right theology? No, no, no. Just somebody who can touch heaven. Just someone who knows the Lord. And what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand is, listen, guys, if you want to walk with me, if you want to be a child of God, it is not about what you believe up here. It's not about just what you can debate with the religious people. It's not whether or not you can win a theological argument. If you're going to be like me, you've got to learn to love like I love. You've got to learn to serve like I serve. The greatest will be the least among you. You've got to learn this radical kind of forgiveness because if you don't learn to forgive, it will be a snare to you. And you will just be, as Paul said, you will just be like clanging cymbals. That's all you'll be. You can preach. You can do ministry. You can do church stuff. Whatever you want to do, charitable works, you just clang, 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 clang. At the end of the day, you've got no power. There's no anointing in you. There's no touch on your life because you choose to hold on to this foothold of the enemy in your life. 
The disciples then ask Jesus. Jesus shows up and he takes care of the situation. He goes off with the disciples. The disciples come to him alone. They say, Lord, why couldn't we do it? And what they were saying was, we did it last time. How come it didn't work this time? And Jesus answers in verse 20. He says, because of your little faith. That's why you couldn't do it. Now catch this. Why couldn't we do it, Lord? Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have little faith, faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will move and what? Nothing will be impossible for you. So on the one hand, you have Jesus saying, you couldn't do it because you have little faith. But if you had little faith, nothing's impossible. Amen? They're all kind of... Because <laughs> it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's actually a contrast. It's a contrasting of two kinds of little faith. When Jesus says, your little faith, you can't do this because of your little faith, what are you saying? He's saying because of your human faith, you can't do this. Because of your natural mind, because you rely on natural senses, and you rely on just kind of formulas and stuff. Your, your faith is a little faith. It's not going to happen that way. But when you have just a little bit of real faith, when you have divine faith, you can uproot that mountain. You can uproot that mulberry tree. It's not about, we know this, it's not about the quantity of your faith. What's it about? It's about the quality of your faith. In the one parable, the mountain, it refers to the, demon, the demons who were tormenting that boy. Jesus said it's because of your little faith that you can't say to that mountain, you can't say to that, that demon that you're trying to cast out, he didn't move because your own faith was too small. You're using your faith. And what was their faith? Here's their faith. But Jesus, we did it last time. No, 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 Jesus said that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's about your present relationship with God. That's what it's about. What you know, who you know in him in your present relationship. And in the parable of the mulberry tree, that barrier, that mulberry tree is the barrier of unforgiveness. The point is this. You may feel this morning when it comes to forgiveness, something the Lord is speaking to you about, you may feel too hurt. You may feel too scared to do what God is telling you to do. And please understand me. I am not saying to anybody here in any way that your pain is not legitimate, that your hurt is not real, that the offense was not real. I am not in any way diminishing that or undermining that it is real. But what Jesus is saying is this, as impossible as it may seem to you, if you will just take one little step with God at a time, that mountain will begin to crumble that tree will begin to be uprooted. Those demonic strongholds will begin to be broken. You see, when the child of God takes God at his word and says, Lord, you know what I feel. You know the pain. You know the anger. You may even know the hatred. Whatever's going on inside of me. Lord, I'm just being real. That's where I am. But, Lord, I don't want it. I don't want to live there. I don't want to give the devil a foothold in my life. Lord, I choose you. That's why the Lord said time and again in his word, choose life. There's life and death before you. I put it before you. I've not forced it there. I'm just telling you, that's where it is. I beg you, choose life that you may live. I want you to live. I want you to be free. 
You say, Lord, I just I can't. That door is just too big. The Lord says, if you will just open it a crack, just a crack, let the light, a sliver begin to shine in. I'll get my foot in there, and I'll begin to work it wide open, and I will clean out that room once and for all. I can do that. It can happen in an instant. It may happen through a process, whatever God in his wisdom wants to do, but he has the power to do that, and he loves you enough to make that happen. The disciples make the mistake of, of believing that everything that should work this time because it did last time. And friends, we do the same thing. Hear me, saints. We put all of our trust in our human nature. We put our trust in our past experiences. We put our, our trust in our personalities, in our charisma. We may even draw crowds, but you know what? Nothing is changing for eternity. Nothing of significance ever really happens. Because it's just in the flesh, it's just in our own strength. The power to cast out demons was not inherent in the disciples. It was in the present relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And friends, the power to do what is humanly impossible is not found in your effort. It is not found in your resolve. It is found in one thing. It is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in drawing close to Jesus Christ, in clinging to him, holding on to him, pursuing him, seeking him, touching him him touching you that's where the answer is that's where it is if you read mark's account of this boy's deliverance in mark chapter 9 jesus added these few words in mark's account jesus responds to the same question he says to them when they said why couldn't we cast it out he said this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer prayer and other manuscripts include the words and fasting. And in that answer, Jesus is telling us how to get the kind of faith we need to move those mountains and to uproot those things that are planted in, in our lives. In my Bible reading, I'm in the Old Testament. I'm still in the book of Exodus. And one of the things I've noticed again, be reminded that is that everywhere that God's presence was with his people, his people just won victory after victory. And you know what? My Bible says that you and I today, this is glorious, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives within us, His Holy Spirit. He is within us. What a glorious thing the Lord has done through His cross. If you practice the presence of the Lord, I can promise you that wherever you go, whether it's into your marriage, into your workplace, into your ministry, the Bible says God goes with you. And He overthrows, He scatters your enemies. How do you get that kind of presence? James said this. He said, come near to God. And what? God will come near to you. C.S. Lewis once used the analogy of a beautiful water fountain in the middle of a village square on a windy day. And he said, as you walk close to that fountain on the windy day, the water, the spray begins to soak you. And God is saying, if you'll just turn in my direction and begin to walk toward me, you'll begin to feel the spray. You'll begin to feel the refreshing. And you will get soaked in my presence. And I'll wash all that stuff all away. The faith you need to uproot that mulberry tree of bitterness will only come, number one, by coming to God, drawing near to God, and number two, by listening to the word that God will speak to you there. And I'm going to close with this point, Romans chapter 10, 17. Paul writes these words, faith comes from hearing, and say it with me, hearing through the word of God. Now, not to split hairs, but there's a very important distinction here. The word that Paul uses in the Greek language for word, it's not the word logos. Logos, you're familiar with. In the beginning, John says with the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and so on. That's the logos, Jesus Christ, the word in flesh. 
He, he, the word of God just all through the whole Bible just reflects Jesus Christ. That's a glorious word. That's what it's all about. The word that Paul uses here in Romans is the Greek word rhema. Rhema is not just the general entirety of God's word given to us. Rhema has to do with specific word that God gives to you at that moment or in a given situation. No, it will never contradict the written word of God. It's not that. In fact, oftentimes it will come from the scriptures. When you read the word of God, sometimes the Holy Spirit will drop something into your heart from the word of God. But the point is, it is a specific word that God gives to you at that moment in your need. It's the same word Jesus used. We did a bit of a cross-reference study here. In John 15, Jesus said this. If you, we read this with me. If you remain in me and my words, okay, remata, that's plural for rhema, okay, your words remain, my words remain in you. What does he say? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, we read that scripture, we think, well, it doesn't work. Yeah, I've asked things. No, we're, we're misunderstanding. What the Lord is saying is this. If you will learn, we're talking about forgiveness. If you will learn to come near to me, let me draw near to you. If you will make the direction to move in my way, I'll begin to spray you. You'll begin to feel my presence. You'll begin to feel just soaked in my presence. And I will give you a word. I will give you a rhema word. I will speak to your heart. But here's the key. I will give you a word that you can think about, that you can pray about, that you can begin to live out. And as you do that, that word that I give to you will be done. You see the difference? It's not a superstitious kind of, oh, what do I want from God? I would like this. No, no. God is saying, when you're in my presence, I will speak to you. I will give you the word of what I'm going to do, and I will make it come to pass as you hold on to that word. God promised in Isaiah 55 that the word he speaks will not return to him empty. It will what? Accomplish that for which he sent it forth. Faith is not just hoping for the best. Faith is receiving a word from God planted in your heart that accomplishes something when you stand on that word and you confess that word and you pray that word and you walk in that word and that word changes you. That's why we can try to deal all we want with hurt and unforgiveness in our own strength and nothing happens. But then God speaks a word to your spirit and that word gives you the power you need to start pulling up that tree by the roots until it is finally cast out and you're completely rid of it. Friends, we all know the experience. We know how God speaks to us, don't we? I, I come to God, all I'm upset, my wife is perfect. You know that. But there have been times over my life I come to the Lord, I'm bugged by something. What's the first thing he will do? He will show me what's wrong with me. He will say, Paul, let me show you why you're offended. Let me show you what's broken in you that enables you to be hurt to be offended. Isn't the Lord wonderful? <laughs> Lord, you're, you're missing the point here. <laughs> no, no, you're missing the point. I want you to be free. Stop, stop rambling in this stuff. I want to show you that let's cut to the chase. Let's do some surgery and get free and get on. Or in the occasion when genuinely it has not been my fault in some other situation, somebody has hurt me, somebody has offended me, you know what happens then? I come before the Lord. I come with my hurt, my honesty, whatever it may be. I'm not playing games. I'm being honest. But the Lord, if I allow him, will begin to show me what is broken in that person, what is hurt in them that caused them to be hurtful toward me. There's an old saying we used to share in our divorce recovery course that hurt people hurt people, right? 
That's all you can do. If I'm broken inside, that means I've got sharp edges. That means I cut. In my words, my actions, the Lord wants to heal my hurt so that I stop hurting. And I can actually be healed myself. But the Lord will either show me what's broken in me or show me what's broken in that other person. And when he does that, the beautiful thing that begins to happen, I actually begin to feel for the other person. I actually begin to understand maybe some of the reasons of what they're doing. And my bitterness gets changed to compassion. And not only am I now willing to begin to forgive as the Lord shows me, I become able to forgive and even to love. When we allow Jesus to bring healing and joy to our lives through his word and through his spirit, do you honestly think that we can hold offense? When we genuinely experience the love of Jesus, when we come into his presence and allow him to wash over us, do you think for a moment that we can leave that presence still demanding a pound of flesh from somebody else? It's absolutely impossible. It doesn't mean that everything is solved overnight. It, the Lord can take it away right away. Or he might say, you know what, I'm just going to use this to grow some things in you. And so you're going to be free bit by bit, bit by bit. It's going to happen, but we're going to walk together in this. The Lord can do it that way as well. C.S. Lewis said, I forgive the inexcusable done to me because Jesus has forgiven the excusable in me. Because he has loved me and forgiven me, I can do the same. I'm going to ask musicians to join me. Will you bow your head with me this morning as we close our time in the word? I'm going to ask that every head bow, every eye closed. Just close yourself in for a moment with the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's anybody that you are holding offense against, anybody you have not forgiven for whatever it may be, allow him to bring that person to mind. You may not even need a second. Instantly, somebody or people came to your mind. If nobody has, I want to encourage you just to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is there something buried down deep that I've just pushed away over the years and you would just at this time bring it to my mind because you want to remove it? Today's the day to do that. Just remain bowed before the Lord and ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, if there's anybody at all, present or past, that you know you're holding on forgiveness. I won't get into it this morning, but some of us here this morning are sick simply because we've not forgiven. Some of us are in strongholds that we can never break out of. We're wondering why, and the Lord is saying, because you have unforgiveness in your heart. I can't hear you. I can't free you until you just open the door a crack, and I will come bursting in. But you've got to open the door. The handle's on the inside, not the outside. Now, we're going to just take another moment if you have something that comes to your mind, and we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak a specific word to us, that rhema word, that he's going to give you to help you to begin to uproot that tree of offense. And that word may be something he says to you to reveal brokenness in you, to say, here's why you've not forgiven. Here's why you were hurt in the first place. It really is your issue, and I want to heal you of that. He's going to give you a word about that, or he's going to give you a word about maybe the other person and say, you know what? I know they hurt you, but I want you to see how the enemy was setting them up the whole time. And in hurting you, they hurt themselves too, and they hurt because they're hurt. And I want to begin to give you some compassion. I want to begin to see them as I see them. And the Lord begins to give you a willingness and then also the ability to not only forgive, but actually want to begin to love them and help them and even pray for them. That's what Jesus said, right? He said, love those who hate you, who do wrong against you, who misuse you. Love them, pray for them, just like I've done for you.
So we're still bowed. And I just want to ask you this morning, nobody looking around, and I'll be the first one to do it myself, but if you're here this morning, you can honestly say, Pastor, yeah, the Holy Spirit has brought somebody to my mind. Just raise your hand. Yes, everywhere. The Holy Spirit has brought somebody to mind. Amen. We're going to worship this morning. And if you want to come and find a place, you can do that. If you want to stand, that means you'd like somebody just to join with you and pray. We'd love to pray for you, and the Lord will set you free. The Lord is here this morning to free you. He is here to fill you with his Holy Spirit and power. He has not asked you to do anything that he has not given you the grace and power to do. But it's got to be by his power and his presence, not by your own resolve. You're never going to make it happen. It's got to be the Holy Spirit in you, heaven, all of you. And you come and you surrender. You're not surrendering to your, your, your rights in the sense that what happened doesn't matter. You're surrendering to your right to say, I have the right to hold this against them. And, and God says, no, you don't. You see, I, I died for every single sin, every sinner, and I died for you. Every despicable thing you are and that you've done, I died for you to forgive you. You have no right to hold it. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Can we stand together?